I do want to mention um, at the outset of this particular Sunday school that if you uh, see the notes, we will be talking about some rather sensitive information. And I say that just as fair warning for you as parents um, who have children in here, uh, use your own discretion um, because of the, the topic that we'll be talking about relative to sexuality and, and um, sexual sin. So use your own discretion. That was fair warning uh, ahead of time. Uh, let, me, let me pray for our time together. And we have a lot to get through this morning, so we'll, we'll do our best to try and make sure that we, we make our way through. Father, we're so grateful for your kindness, your love, your mercy, your grace toward us. I pray, Father, that our hearts are building within them uh, gratitude toward you, that, that at every turn, the ways in which we see you pour out your mercy to us and demonstrate your grace um, for us, your favor toward we who believe. We're, we're so grateful, Lord. I pray that you continue to foster that in our hearts. And Lord, as we talk about this subject, which is uh, very forward in our culture, I pray that you would help give us wisdom uh, with it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, along with my, um, my fair warning, I would say that um, I would encourage you as parents to talk to your children about sexuality, sex uh, in general. The, um, the culture is sure not shying away from talking to them about it, and you want to make sure that, that um, God's voice on that subject is the one that they hear most. And so I understand it's awkward but let me just encourage you to, to talk to your children. Uh, as we talk about biblical soul care for those committing sexual sin, now I want to do this deliberately in the way in which we think about this. But I think we have to begin not just jumping in talking about sexual immorality itself. Um, this is common for me, the way that I like to do things, is before we get so problem-focused, and yes, sexual immorality is a problem biblically, okay? But before we get so problem-focused, we can become reactionary, and we often can lose sight of how we think about remedying problems uh, when we just look at the problem itself. And so what we have to do is take a step back, and for us who believe, it's really important that we look at the Scriptures and we understand what I call the theological ideal. So anytime that we get into specific issues, you'll hear me do this, and I think it's so important that you do this as well, and this is a part of what it... What should be happening weekly when you hear the teaching of the Scriptures and you sit under the ministry of the Word is what the Lord is doing is, yes, it's conviction of sin, but it's also an edification. It's a building up of what the Scriptures say about particular subjects, what God requires in particular areas. And we should have what I call the theological ideal. So when we talk about sexual immorality, that is a brokenness. That's an expression of brokenness. So I want us to talk first and foremost about what did God intend in relation to sexuality. And listen, the truth of the matter is, uh, we could do an entire series on this one subject, talking about the beauty that God has given in sexuality. I, I don't know about you, but at least in my context growing up, sex was always something that was not talked about a lot in the church, and it was talked about in the context of being bad. Don't do it all the time, right? And so uh, while that is good advice for those who are not married, um, it, it doesn't give the proper biblical perspective on how we should think about sex and sexuality. And so we have to begin in a place of what is sex, what is sexuality. Um, when we think about 
sex itself, we have to understand what God calls pure and what he calls holy. That he calls these things good. He, he says that sex and sexuality and the demonstration or the culmination of love in relationship is actually a good thing. Marital, covenantal relationship. One of the things we have to do scripturally, I think, is we have to learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. I want to pause for a second, and, and I want you to understand some of what the Scripture describes. If you think about uh, how to teach your, your son in relation to sexuality, for example, you need to begin in a place of the way, the way God begins in a place, and he, he starts with Lady Wisdom. If you look at Proverbs 1 through 9, you see Solomon speaking to his, sons and he, he, or to his son, and he's speaking to him about wisdom. What, what is wise from God's perspective. And that all begins with the fear of the Lord and how we understand God and then how we see everything else in relation to Him, including the way we're intended to relate, male and female, in the covenantal expression of sexuality in marriage. And then you hear Him begin to warn, right? <clears throat> warn about this lady and this lady. And it's all in contrast to lady wisdom. And you see this, this, this perspective and it's really helpful to understand that. The, the second thing I want to mention, and, and again, we're like blazing through this, but the second thing I want to mention is we have to begin to build what God loves and understand what God hates, and, and our hearts need to do the same. I remember uh, being taught when I was young that if you're not married, you should not read the Song of Solomon. Anybody else? Raise your hand. You're, this is confession. You guys are killing me. Are you serious? You were encouraged to read the Song of Solomon even before you were married. And that was like, no, no, like, don't do that. You'll be tempted beyond the... The odd thing about the Song of Solomon is it's actually written to virgins. Have you ever thought about that? The Song of Solomon is actually written to the virgin daughters of Jerusalem. He repeats that phrase three times. You ever wondered why he writes that for them? It's because he's helping them to build an understanding of what God loves. And when we see what God loves, we desire that and the reaction is to keep myself because I want that. That's the picture that you see. For us, I think we need to be doing the same thing when we think about God's wisdom in relation to sexuality. Now, here's the deal. When we think about the theological ideal, what God expects or what God demands, what he's given us in sexuality that's good, uh, for us to see it that way is, is very helpful in contrast to the way the world, the world describes sex, sexuality, and so on. And so when we're contrasting, it's easy for us to get caught in this mix of how terrible the culture is, and we understand how terrible the culture is in, uh, in relation to this particular subject, uh, and how immoral it is, and then we begin to compare ourselves to that level of immorality. And do you see the problem that happens here? It's sort of like the proverbial frog in the, in the pot, where it's easy for us to drift away from what God loves and understand what he hates to where we find ourselves approving things that God disapproves of and so on. And so we have to be very cautious in the ways in which we, we understand this. Okay? When you have to begin with how God understands and God expects us to live in relation to sexuality. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This seems to me to be the question that, that is asked of Paul, or at least one of the questions that's asked of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, really deals with all sorts of things, one among those being sexual immorality. And you already know 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what's happening there. We fast forward, um, 
into chapter 6, and we're dealing with issues of lawsuits and things like that. And then there's this man who's a part of the church who's sleeping with a prostitute, and that's a second incident already just uh, on Paul's radar that he's addressing. And then it seems as though uh, someone has written to him, right, in this, in this book asking specific questions, and this is how he responds, at least related to the issue of, of marriage uh, and, and sexuality. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now I'll briefly just say that, that Paul is responding to a question of some sort here. And he's trying to give clarity in, uh, in Corinth on how to think about relationship between husband and wife, how to think about specifically sexuality. He goes on to talk about all sorts of things in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 as it relates to divorce and that sort of thing. He talks about singleness, which is really important in relation to this subject as well. And one of the key themes is that, that Paul teaches, whether you're single or married in this, in this pathway, in this idea here re related to sexuality, is uh, be doing the things that God has called you to do in your station in life. And what you find is immorality reigns and spreads at places where we're not doing the things God has called us to do in our specific station of life. So let's take singleness, for example. One of the ways that sexual immorality pervades a life of singleness is when we're not doing the things that God has called us to do specifically related to our singleness in the ways in which we live life and what we devote our life to, right? You've heard this said like this before, that the idle mind is the devil's playground. I think this is a part of what Paul is expressing even here in 1 Corinthians 7 where he, he argues for singleness saying this is a healthy thing but pay attention to what you devote yourself to. And I think that's really, really important. So whether you find yourself in singleness long-term, it's, it's the state of life that God has called you to, you have to find yourself pursuing the things that God has called you to do, giving yourself in fullness for the sake of the glory of God and the kingdom, and that you're free to do that. You're not tied to earthly things. If you don't do that, you're going to find yourself not just in sexual immorality, but all sorts of manner of immorality, and that's a part of what Paul argues here. And then if you're in a, in a state of singleness preparing for marriage or, or waiting for that moment and that time, Song of Solomon is a perfect expression for you to, to think about how do I keep myself, how do I keep my mind? Uh, you long for the things that God loves and that you see that worthy enough to keep yourself now pure. So we think about what God gives us in terms of pure and holy. 1 Corinthians 7, I, I think that's a, a picture. Now, we've got to do this quickly because we have a lot to talk about in relation to sexual immorality. But if we think about sex in general, one of the things that's missing, and I would argue this even in the church, okay, that when we think about heterosexuality, okay, uh, sometimes we, we see all the sexual immorality that's happening out there today with homosexuality and transgenderism, gender dysphoria, all, all those terms that we see, even pedophilia being talked about in endearing terms, which is unbelievably shocking, but that's the world that we live in. When you start down the slippery slope, accepting things away from a moral disposition that God has given, this is the place that we find ourselves. Uh, and it's not going to be long before pedophilia is decriminalized and actually promoted as a proper sexuality. Uh, and that is, 
That is an abomination before God. And we have to keep our sense about us relative to God's clear moral teaching here. But when we think about sexuality, when we compare ourselves to the culture, what we think is heterosexual sin is better than any other type of sexual immorality. Can I encourage you people, the teaching that you probably need to hear is that heterosexual sin is the same immorality as any other type of sexual sin. And we have to understand in our culture, the way that we think about American individualism is we pursue sexuality to benefit us. And that's why we think it exists. We think that, yes, it's a good gift from God in Christian circles and that we're to pursue it in, in the, under the moral disposition that God has given us, but we still pursue it to benefit us or to please ourselves. There's a book written by early biblical counselor, Dr. Bob Smith. You're probably familiar with him from some of our teachings about physical illness. He wrote a book that I still think is one of the best, most simple books on the issue of sexuality, biblical principles of sex. This is what he says. If love is the basis for sex, the goal of sexual relationship is giving and not getting. Now, you probably as a married couple should go home and like think about that long and hard because I think that that mindset is radically different than what our culture presses, presses toward us in the ways in which we think about pursuing the good gift of sexuality that God has given. Now think about this. In the way in which God demonstrated his love to us is he gave us Christ. And the way in which we love other people is despite them giving ourselves for their sake. Now you tell me, why does that cease when you get in the bedroom? We have to pause to think about this idea of love and that the expression of what God has given us in love, even in the culmination of good, healthy relationship and sexuality, is giving, not getting. That's the picture that we see in Scripture. And that's something that I think you need to be, as a married couple, engaging in. So you have to think about it in terms like that. Even in the 1 Corinthians 7 passage, um, this is something that God gives us to protect us from immorality. And that that's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. Okay, but it has to be done in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And, and that disposition is always in everything that we engage in. In everything that we engage in is to love from a disposition of giving, benefiting someone else as opposed to, to getting. And you can see how immorality reigns when we start to pursue, even in marital context, sexuality or, or sexual expression for the benefit of self. Now we have all sorts of perversion, but we think it's okay because it's under the moral disposition of heterosexuality and covenant marriage. So I want to even warn us, even at that point. So now, now we talk about sexual immorality. This should start to make sense to us because if we, if we set up this idea of sexuality from God's disposition and from God's perspective, now we can see, why does God name all of these different expressions of sexual immorality? I mean, what does that mean? It's just like, he doesn't like those things? No, the idea is it's breaking an expression of something specific. Because the expression of sexuality is, is a husband and wife coming together. And it's culmination, okay? If you're having trouble in sexual relationship within marriage, it's often and primarily relational. And the reason is, is because... Uh, relational relationship that you have with your spouse in terms of vulnerability and so on comes out in expression and culmination into intimacy. 
Okay, so all, our culture misdiagnoses this all the time where we have sexual problems in relationship and we start trying different practices as opposed to understanding that this is a culmination of something that God has given. The same is true when we think about our relationship to, to God. The ways in which we walk with Him come from intimate relationship with Him. And so you think about sexual immorality, these things are an expression of brokenness. So now you have the standard, you have the idea, the, the theological ideal, if you will, and all the places that God teaches and, and, and gives these types of expressions a misuse, if you will, of sexuality, this blessing that God has given, they, they are not the picture that they're supposed to proclaim. So what are they supposed to proclaim? What, what, is, what is sexual relationship intended to proclaim? So we see this starting in Genesis. We see this throughout the Old Testament. But, but more clearly, you get to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Ephesians gives this picture. Ephesians 5, Paul gives this expression of, the, the relationship between Christ and his church, Christ and his bride with a husband and his wife. And what we see is this, this expression of oneness, that two become one flesh. Uh, and there's a reason that in Romans chapter 1, the, the Bible tells us that sexuality expressed any other way is something that's unnatural. It's because of the ways in which God made us male and female, there was an intentionality of how that's supposed to fit together, not to be graphic, but that's the idea. And you follow that out now to see that what God has done is all of this sexual expression is intended to be a picture, a portrait of something. And so if we were to flesh this out, uh, you need to follow me here, is in, in temporal terms, in earthly terms, God does this all the time where he gives us expression in the temporal that's intended to uh, explain or demonstrate for us something that's spiritual and eternal, okay? And, and I think this is a part of that expression in sexuality, is the two become one flesh. You say, what is that supposed to express? Paul explains that in Ephesians chapter 5 where he says that this is what it, it's like for a husband and a wife. They are the expression or the portrait of the gospel, okay? And now sexuality becomes that, that temporal expression of that. And what's it expressing? something far more eternal than just a temporal sexual relationship. The oneness that we as the bride, the church, have with Christ. The Bible actually describes the relationship that we have with Christ in expression, or that portrait is that we are just not one with him in flesh, we are one with him in spirit, the Bible says. And so now we're, we're talking about this relationship expresses far more than we ever intended. And you don't, you don't just have your own will to express your sexuality however it is that you want. Because God has given a specific means that it's intended to express. And one aspect of that expression of sexuality is certainly intended to express the beauty of intimate relationship that Christ provided between him and his bride which we could flesh that out. I wish we had time to turn to Revelation 19 and you can see the beauty of that relationship in what Christ himself has done for the bride. And he's demonstrated love to give himself for the sake of another, even when they didn't deserve it. For what purpose? For intimate relationship for all eternity. So when we think about sexual immorality, it has to be built on that basis or else we begin to answer the problem wrongly. We begin to grade out different types of sexual immorality, and we think it's okay to be involved in these things, but not these things. And that's a wrong expression for us in the church when we believe in the sufficiency of the word and the purposes for which God has given. So let me just mention several things, and you can see these. I've put these on your notes for you um, that, that 
are expressions of sexual immorality. And you have to remember, the reasons these are expressions of sexual immorality is because they do not meet the requirement that God gave for the reason that he gave us sexuality, which was expression of a far greater truth of Jesus and his bride. Some of those are premarital sex, fornication as the Bible describes it, prostitution would be another, which I already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, adultery, Jesus speaks very clearly on that. This is something that's taught throughout the whole of the Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. Bestiality, you scoff at that. This was back in uh, early 2000s uh, in Florida, which is where I'm from, so I can dog Florida a little bit. Um, There was a petition made by an individual to marry a dolphin. And so you think about the, the state of our culture, and we are constantly sliding down this hill. Bestiality, homosexuality, Gender dysphoria in that encompasses the whole idea of transgenderism and that sort of thing, <coughs> excuse me, gender confusion. Uh, incest, um, rape, polyamory, which is becoming uh, more and more popular. That's multiple partners at the same time. Uh, and Think about what that expresses in relation to the gospel. Okay, and now are you seeing the picture? There are many ways to heaven. There are many ways to good relationship. You see, the, the, the picture that we see in the Scripture, what we're protecting here is the gospel because your marriage done rightly is a portrait of the gospel to express something about the nature of Christ and the goodness that he gives us. There is one way, right? There's one way to the Father. And then polygamy. So all these things are sexual, sexually immoral expressions, okay? And that's why these things are an abomination to God. They do not express his character for which he gave us this good gift of sexuality. Does that make sense to you, where, we, where we've gone, at least to this point? Because now what I have to do is to see if we can work through, how are we so entrapped in this? That's the question. And here's what, let me just say this very, very forwardly and upfront. In the culture in which we live, it's very easy for us to, to just float along in the stream of sexual immorality and our consciences not be pricked about these things. And let me just say for even the people who are in this room that it's not unusual that that we, even the people of God, would be deceived in such a way and to start floating in the wrong direction as it relates to our sexually moral responsibility before God. And so if you find yourself in these places, you need to repent and confess before the Lord and you need to get help in how to walk faithfully with the Lord to correct this Because the constant testimony of Scripture is this is a downward spiral. And you find yourself, as Paul would say, you're presenting your members once again to bondage and slavery. And you find yourself in a life-dominating sin to where now your testimony becomes, I can't help it. And that's the expression of biblical bondage that you see in the Scripture. So you need to pay very close attention to that and, and be willing to say, None of us in this room are outside of the possibility of sin. None of us, particularly related to this. None of us in here. And when you think about the seeds in our heart that are in our flesh, the Lord has freed us so that we don't have to obey those. We don't have to follow those. But those seeds still exist in us. And that's why the Bible is constantly, Paul in Romans 8, Colossians chapter 3, he's telling us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. So we need to be wise and cautious and and intentional in what we pursue here. So I'm going to talk to you about the pattern in the way in which this happens. So this this comes by way of warning to many of you 
as to how we fall into sexual temptation and sexual immorality. And then for many of you as, as a means of warning, how to notice that you're falling off the map, so to speak, or how to, how to be aware that you're in danger here. So turn over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And man, this is one of the days I really wish we had the, the hour. Um, so we just missed it on the side of Easter. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'll start in verse 1. It really, you could read the whole thing. I, I, the reason I want to throw verse 1 in here is because you hear what, what God says through the Apostle John by way of Christ being an advocate, yes, even for those who sin. And you need to hear that with the things that we're talking about right now. 1 John 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's not a more sobering, calming, and comforting passage in the whole of the Bible for we who believe than to know that even when we sin, thanks be to God, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is righteous. That's insinuating that you're not the righteous. Praise the Lord for that. Now go down to to verses 15 and 16. And this really sets up, I think, a pattern. It, It helps us to understand what the... Uh, what we're up against and the enemy that we're fighting. Let me recommend to you a really great book um, by Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within. And he talks about this idea. He's really borrowing from the great Puritan John Owen. And he, he helps us to understand the process by which the evil one lures and entices us. And he calls the mind the watchman of the soul. And I think that expression is super, super helpful that the mind, that what you allow into your mind, whether by visual um, sen- sensation or what you entertain consistently, what you allow in your mind, uh, you, you are allowing to breach um, your heart. That's the idea. So your mind is the watchman of the soul. Listen to this, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world... And here are the three categories that I'm describing. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I love the way that God helps us here. He helps us to understand categorically. He's like, you want a measuring stick of how you, how you measure something that's, that's immoral or away from God or of the world? Uh, these are the th- three basic categories. Now, these are broad categories. I, I certainly admit that. But I want to start with the foundation here because what you see is that I, I think that First John, this categorization in 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16, are really uh, follow the same pattern of Genesis chapter 3 where we have something that's a delight to the eyes. It's a pleasure to the flesh. They see it as useful for them and then they pursue it. And that in and of itself, I think, builds the ways in which we fall categorically into sinful expression or immorality broadly, and particularly as it relates to sexual immorality. Something becomes a delight to our eyes, and by that sensation, we begin to build a reality that we think is beneficial for ourselves. And in that, remember, Christ died so that you no longer live for yourself. So if you're not thinking according to to Christ, you're thinking according to the world, who is it that you want to please? Yourself. Now, visually, you begin to see something that you think is for you. And you begin to utilize that thing, whatever that object is, for yourself. This is one of the ways that we fall into sexual immorality. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 4. 
you actually see, interestingly, um, this same sort of categorization or expression, Proverbs chapter 4. Remember, I mentioned to you earlier, Proverbs 1 through 9 is really um, a critical expression for teaching our sons about this issue of sexual immorality and how to keep themselves. And the antithesis that's built here um, from following Lady Folly is to follow Lady Wisdom, to follow God's wisdom. And one of the most keen expressions, I think, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which is familiar to you, but I want you to read the rest of it. Verse 23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. Now, if you get back to my, my picture here, the reason the New Testament uh, reminds us constantly to guard the mind as the watchman of our soul or our heart. Guard the mind. Renew the mind constantly. How? By the word, constantly. Right? F flesh out your mind specifically, what you're thinking, what you're dwelling on, what you're loving, what you're hoping in. Because that is the gateway to your heart. So if we pair that with Proverbs 4.23, watch over, guard your heart. How do you do that? By your mind, Philippians 4, verse 8. Think on things that are true, right, just, noble, and of good repute, or good report. 2 Corinthians uh, 10, we think on things the way God tells us to, taking thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. That's the way that we renew our mind. Romans chapter 12, same idea. Okay, is you're guarding your heart when you take control of your mind by the word, Colossians 3.16, dwelling on the word richly, right? So this is the picture. Now follow through, verse 24, he says, Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes not look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Verse 27, do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. You see this, I think a similar perspective is what's given in 1 John 2. I would argue also Genesis chapter 3. Remember, the fruit was a delight to her eyes before she thought it was wise. And so this is a, an expression of warning to us in how we fall. So something becomes a delight to the eyes. When you're entertaining something with your eyes and you're justifying that, whereas Job said he would not put any uh, unworthy thing before his eyes, we, we have to be cautious in what we put before our eyes, what we give to our senses. And so something becomes a delight to your eyes. Well, then the next category that happens is we begin justifying it, making it pleasurable to our flesh. And let me just tell you, you don't need help with that. Because you already want what you want. And what you're constantly fighting is to overcome by the power that Christ has given to you so that you no longer live according to the power of the flesh that's within, within you, the, the, the desire to just please yourself. That's a part of the expression of what makes us sinners, right? We are sinners by nature, but our expression of sin is because we love to please ourselves. And so if something becomes a delight to our eyes, we're lured and enticed by that. We uh, find it pleasurable to our flesh. And this is how these sinful passions are built, particularly in sexuality, in many different forms. And again, we have a tendency to look at the culture and say, well, we're not doing all that stuff that's like super far left. And we have a tendency to justify that as if it's okay. And we have to be cautious and careful because let me just tell you, the culture is not the standard but yet we can make ourselves very comfortable with that because we look at the culture and not at God's Word. Let me warn us just very quickly before we go any further. 
One of the things that I've seen consistently in, in working with folks who struggled with sexual immorality of all sorts and all kinds is sexual lust primarily is not always the problem or the impetus. So we have this tendency to think, well, if, if what I'm expressing on the outside is sexual lust or sexual immorality, then it has to be some root of sexual lust on the inside. It's not always the case. You see, here's what happens. When you allow your flesh to run rampant in you, the expression or manifestation of that flesh in a thousand fruits will come in whatever way that you're enticed. So when the flesh, are you following what I'm saying? When the flesh becomes unwieldy at any point, when you're undisciplined at any point, when you're tempted in the flesh by sexual temptation, guess what's coming out? Fruit of the flesh. So it doesn't have to be necessarily tied to some exquisite sexual lust from your past or anything like that. It's certainly reinforced by those things. But you have to be cautious in what you're putting to death, anything that's related to the world or the flesh. And so I want to caution us here when we think about sexual passions, because sometimes we can't see, like, where did this come from? Why did this happen? Why am I so tempted? Why did I fall in this way? Well, the reasons that we see that is because our lives are undisciplined. We're constantly feeding the flesh. And when tempted in this particular way, this is the expression of the flesh as we fall in that particular way. So how does this happen? Essentially what happens is we begin to um, self-reward in terms of sexual immorality. We're consoling ourselves because we find ourselves in a pitiful situation situation we didn't want to be in, don't want to be in, um, but we don't see ourselves getting out of, so we're consoling self-pity. Uh, sometimes we're consoling brokenness. Maybe we've been let down in some sort of relationship or we didn't get some of the things that we wanted in, in, some, other, you know, in some other area of life. Uh, so some of us go to chocolate ice cream. Others of us go to sexual Im immorality as ways of consoling the flesh. Are you seeing how this pattern sort of builds, right? Uh, and then consoling anger, where we get frustrated about something and, and then we're consoling ourselves. The whole point is that we're, we're just simply finding some sort of reward of our own selves. Okay, now let's talk specifically about how this happens. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. <clears throat> I'll start in verse 12. And remember, we've just come off the heels of talking about uh, suffering and difficulty and, and how we persevere in this way. Okay, James 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who, who love him. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, and the reason that word is really important is because it's the same exact Greek word that that God uses to express the idea of trial in our suffering. Uh, what, what Satan intends for evil in terms of temptation, God can use for good in terms of trial. Uh, we could flesh that out later. That's not the point here. But let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because James knows that that's the expression. Well, why is all the suffering happening? And if this is a trial from God, why is God tempting me to do evil? And James is correcting this idea here. And he says, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You need to put that passage in your pocket somewhere. Because the natural expression when we sin or when we're tempted is the same thing that Adam and Eve did. 
Blame shifting, which ultimately results in blaming God who is sovereign. And James curbs that here because that's your tendency, that's my tendency, that when we fall, ultimately it has to do with, God, why did you let me down? Or God, this was your fault in some way. Or they didn't do this, God, so if they would have done this, then I would have done this. Okay, Verse 14, but each of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Verse 15, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, he's talking to believers, and he's warning them about deception. And even in difficulty, suffering, trial, that we can be tempted in these ways. And and how does it happen? Look at how it happens. He, He makes clear God is not the one who's tempting us in this way. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. People will say, well, well, Satan made me do it. Listen, that's very clear here that Satan does not have that power over any of you who believe. He can lure and entice you for sure. But you are carried away by your own lustful desires. And so where should the finger be pointing? Right? We live in a culture that wants to shed guilt. The guilt lies with us particularly and specifically. We are carried away, lured and enticed by our own desires. Later in James 4, he asked the question relative to conflict. What's the source of quarrel and conflict among you? He points in the same direction. Is it not the desires that are at work within you, he says? So it's the same idea here. We're lured and enticed by our own desires. And see how this happens. And this is where Lungard does a really good job of explaining sort of our downfall here and the process by which it happens. It's sort of reverse sanctification, if you will. It's conceived. The lust is conceived. We see something, it becomes pleasurable to our mind. In our senses, we begin to justify it and build a reality where that was meant for me. And we want to take part in that, whatever that particular thing is. So lust is conceived. And when something is conceived, it's intended to do what? Bring forth until it's born. That's the idea. And lust is conceived, and then this lust is is birthed, and it's birthing something in particular. It's bringing forth sin, sinful expressions. And this is why people don't just jump off the cliff of sin immediately. It's a slow fade constantly behind the scenes where you'd never guess this would have happened. When your life is not in check constantly in private, it begins to express itself publicly. This is the, this is the process by which James is describing here. And I understand this is like really uncomfortable stuff, but this is the reality of where we live. And we have to deal with ourselves and each other on this level because this is where the battle rages, okay? Lust is conceived, then it's birthed, then it breeds sin. And what does sin do when it's full grown? It brings forth death. Why there's a path of destruction in the wake of our expressions of sin is because sin brings forth death. And that word just simply means separation or brokenness. When we think about dying physically, your body is separated from your soul. If you think about uh, fulfilling lust in terms of sin, sin being bred and then it brings forth death, death in relationship, death in your usefulness, death in your conscience, that your conscience begins to be seared, Um, death in hope. Again, this is reverse sanctification, whereas when we endure suffering and trial and difficulty, Romans 5 tells us that it leads to a hope that does not put us to shame. But here it's completely reversed because this is the place at which we find ourselves in bondage 
to the evil one. Where we are now completely engulfed in shame and we feel like we become useless. And we could even argue that, that yes, the body dies in terms of sexual expression, STDs, and so on and so forth. And so now you can see that the downfall that happens in relation and how it happens in relation to sexual immorality and what it is that we're fighting against. And what makes a person wise, I've learned this in, in having children, what makes a person wise is they, they think about the decision and what's going to be affected tomorrow. So, so when a child makes a decision, they're not thinking about five minutes from now. They're just thinking, what does it matter right in this minute? And they go ahead and do whatever it is, and then they pay the consequences, whatever that might be. We do the same thing. When we're unwise, we, we make expressions or we make decisions based on not thinking about what comes in the future. The, the beauty of God giving us wisdom is now we can see this thought leads to this attitude, which leads to this action and this love and this affection. And then eventually it will fruit itself in something on the outside. And so why is it that I'm motivated to guard my heart? Why is it that I'm motivated to take thoughts captive? Is because I know that if I don't put this earthly thought to death in me, I know what it leads to in the future. And this is a warning from the Scripture in kindness. Think about God's kindness to warn us here. And so as we think about falling into sexual immorality, there's biblical remedy for this, right? So, so I want to say this on two fronts for us. There's a preventative care in what I've been talking about up to this point. A warning from the Scriptures to prevent us from falling into sexual temptation, from falling into sexual immorality. And we need to bolster that consistently among us together. But then what do we do when one of us has fallen into sexual immorality? How do we handle it then? Is there a remedy then? Yes, and the Scripture says, absolutely. And so how do we remedy that? How do we, how do we move forward? Okay, Again, we're, we're reversing this whole downfall and being able to build God's remedy. Let's see if I can do this quickly, as quickly as possible. All of this is found in the gospel of grace, the, the kindness that the Lord has given us. As we learned in 1 John, Christ the righteous being our advocate. This is the picture. Now, this is not intended to be an expression of, well, I can just go sin on Saturday night because Jesus' righteousness covers me. Right? If you're okay and comfortable with that disposition before the Lord, let me just warn you from walking in that disposition as if you have a license to do whatever you want. The call of Christ's grace is a command to obey Him, to demonstrate that you love Him, to see an outworking from your heart that there is love in disposition toward Him. And so I want to warn you, do not walk carelessly as if you have a license to do whatever it is that you want because Christ's grace is sufficient for all. Now, that last statement is true, but it's not in the sense of us just being free to do whatever we want. The point of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 and 15, is that we are now free to obey Christ. That's the beauty of true expression of grace of Christ given to us. So now we think about the, 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 beauty, the beauty of gospel grace is we are to kill sin, not just sexual lust. One of the most devastating things, I think, for those who find themselves in some expression of sexual immorality, and one that I forgot to mention, by, by the way, was uh, visual stimulation. This is the idea from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, where um, he tells us the way if we look at a woman with lust in our heart. So I would include that as well in, in this idea of sexual immorality. But some of the ways that we think that sin runs on a single lane, 
like a single highway. That's, that's, that's damaging to us. Our call is to kill sin. If you think about Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, well, verse 1, he tells us to think on things above, and then he gets the expression in verse 15, or verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And if you keep following that out, you get to verse 15, and he says, this is where the, the peace of Christ rules or reigns in your heart. Verse 16, this is where the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, and what will come out of you is thankfulness. And so we're called to kill sin wherever it's found, no matter what, because if you feed the flesh, it will come out in expression in however you're tempted. So not just sexual lust, kill sin everywhere, okay? Dehabituation, rehabituation, let me explain that in a second. You've been in a pattern. If you're falling in sexual immorality, you've been in a pattern of thinking and things that you pursue consistently that makes that enticing to you. And so that way, when you're tempted, you fall. You have to rehabit yourself. You've got to dehabit some of those old patterns and the things that you've introduced to your heart. You've got to dehabit that. And you've got to rehabituate. You've got to rehabit yourself. This is, there are two ways that you fight sin, okay? Two ways. The first way is when you're too immature to say no to temptation, you flee, the scripture says. You run from it. That means you rehabit. You go different places. You get rid of computers. You do all of that kind of stuff, okay? You're rehabiting yourself to build back what's, what's good and right in the sight of God, in your heart and in your mind. And then radical amputation might be necessary as well, where you know the, the, the answer to our sexual immorality is not just getting rid of all iPhones and getting rid of computers. You should probably do that, okay? Because in the moment when you're tempted, getting rid of that thing, plucking it out of your eye, uh, plucking out your eye is a good thing, right? Um, cut it off, radical amputation. But that's not the sole answer to it. Does that make sense? So you should do that plus pursue rehabiting your life because the second way that you fight sin is to grow to maturity to where you're not tempted by that anymore. You now love what God loves and you hate what he hates. Do you see the picture? And so now it's not a temptation to have an iPhone and look at whatever you want, right? It's not a temptation there. So that, that's my point is you have to do both and not either or. We sort of think about it in Christian terms. Well, if I just you know, block my iPhone and don't have it anymore, then, then I'm free from sexual immorality. No, you're not. It still rests in your heart. And that's one step and stage in the process of getting rid of this in your heart. You still have to kill it to where you don't love it. Now, I wish we had time. I've got to close this down. But what, we, what we're after is a heart of gratitude where we see the, state, the station that we're at in life is we express glory to God with what he's given us in this moment. Um, what you'll see in Colossians 3 is the fruit of those who think on things above and put to death, therefore, what is earthly in them, is, yes, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, the word of Christ dwelling in us. And in both of those passages, the, the fruit of that is thankfulness. And if you hear Paul in the New Testament constantly, what's coming out of him is he learned how to be content. That's one of the most important things. Sexual immorality is an expression of discontentment with the station that God has given you right now and the things that God has given you access to right now. It's an expression of discontentment. And so we have to build a heart of gratitude. Now we could go on. Let me mention just maybe one or two more things. Um, temptation journal. I like to use a temptation journal based on 2 Corinthians 10. I want to know the patterns of thinking so that we can rehabit those patterns of thinking. Because if we're deceived, we don't see it. That's the whole point. It's not like stop being deceived and you'll be okay. The, the point is like, you're being deceived by the lust of your eyes and the things that you want to pursue in your flesh. 
And so I have to help you in that process, okay? If we see fruit that you've fallen in sexual immorality, I know that that came about by you're entertaining something in your heart and in your mind, and you've been deceived by it, so we need to correct that. And that's one of the things that I would, would help pursue. Let me, let me finish out by saying this, Hebrews 5, 14, is we have to grow in our levels of discernment because that's what maturity is. And when we put to death, Colossians 3, 5, therefore what is earthly in us, we begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And as we begin to do that, what we see is the fruit of the Spirit coming out of us, namely what we've lacked, which is self-control. The issue of self-control, I would argue, is the impetus behind almost every expression of sexual immorality. And the reason is because we're undisciplined in our life in the whole, and it doesn't start with sexual temptation. It often starts with just a feeding of the flesh in a myriad of ways, an undisciplined life in a myriad of ways, and then we find ourselves captured, captured by the thoughts of the flesh. And as we're tempted sexually, that's where we go. And one of the most important things is that we pursue a disciplined life constantly putting to death, therefore, what is earthly in us so that we can express true biblical self-control and out of that gratitude. And then we'll see that we love and are affectionate toward the things that God loves and we begin to hate what he hates, namely sexual immorality. Let me pray. Father, we're, we're thankful for this morning and uh, we trust that the things that were spoken were... Um, edifying and helpful, even convicting. I pray, God, that you would help this word resonate into our heart. We need it sincerely. Uh, help us with this difficult topic, something that pervades our culture so much. Uh, guard us in this room. Help us to guard each other by your word. Um, and let us be free to, to engage each other at this level. In Christ's name, amen.